You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We have now covered the main areas of knowledge that are of purely human origin. We talked about the liberal arts or logic, which are the tools of human knowledge. And then we talked about natural science, which deals with a world that is immediately evident to us and which is the basis of other types of knowledge, including mathematics in its own right, although mathematics is also a tool and a liberal art. And then we talked about the practical matters, about ethics, human way of living, politics, the way of living in community, and then about technology and economics, the different skills that we have in using the natural resources that are provided for us by our natural environment and the importance of our protecting that environment but also perfecting it, making it more suitable for human use, not only use for the practical necessities of life but also as an object of study, contemplation and enjoyment. What we have not talked about is how to get this all together. One of the problems of our day, and I think any university student has experienced it, is the extreme fragmentation of knowledge. There are so many departments in the university, each with its own technical language, and they hardly speak to each other. How are we going to get all of that information together? And the internet floods us with even more information. It's all cut up and parceled, and we can't get a single vision of the world and of our place in it and our life. Modern thought has solved that problem chiefly by resort to history. I said earlier in talking about rhetoric that ancient history was primarily aimed at teaching moral lessons. Thucydides, for example, wrote his history to do of the Greek states and their wars in order to supply politicians with a certain understanding of political problems. History then was to teach us lessons, practical lessons of behavior in political and social life. But the modern conception of history is different. History now becomes the way we put everything together. After all, whatever happens is a part of one immense drama which we call history. This tendency to turn to history as the unifying discipline 
arose especially through the philosopher Hegel in the early part of the 19th century. He is the first philosopher really to attempt to develop a philosophy of history. It is true that Plato and Aristotle and others had talked about a kind of cycle of history, the rise and fall of empires. They thought of history as repeating over and over again. But Hegel thought of history as an evolution from something very simple to something very grand, complex, and unified. And he tried to show in his philosophy the laws by which history develops. This has been enhanced after Hegel by Darwin. Darwin showed that to understand life, it's not sufficient to know the laws of biology, what happens over and over again in the life of an animal or a plant. It's necessary to see how they came to be through a history of evolution, coming from the simplest one-celled form of life all the way up to the complex and highly unified human life. That introduced into science itself a historical synthesis. It no longer was a question of laws, because laws have to do with repetition, what happens over and over again regularly. But history has to do with unique events and with a certain development, one event after another. This was true of biology, and now it is true of cosmology, of physical science, the science of the non-living universe. Because while for Newton, the laws of nature were repetition, the orbiting of the planets around the sun, the regular laws of falling bodies. And that prevailed all through 19th century science. But now we see science as having to do with the origin of the universe in the Big Bang and its development from originally a kind of atom in which all matter was condensed together to an expansion of the universe larger and larger, the production of the galaxies and the super galaxies and within our galaxy, the Earth and its evolutionary history of life. The laws of quantum physics apply to that evolution. And so it is possible to predict, or at least imagine, how the first moments of the universe took place. And there are books explaining the first seconds of the expansion of the universe. And nevertheless, scientists admit that those laws will never be able to tell us any of the details of the development of the evolution of the universe. Those things have to do with chance, just as much as the laws of evolution of life. History is a matter of chance. 
of one unique event after another. Somebody said history is one damn thing after another. Well, it's one unique thing after another. There are certain general patterns, perhaps, that one can detect, but one can never predict the next moment of history because chance plays such a large part. If you think of the assassination of President Kennedy, the laws of physics will tell us why when the bullet left the gun of Oswald, it took a certain projection to the head of President Kennedy. It will tell us why if his automobile was moving at a certain pace, that it got to the point where it did. The laws of psychology and politics will tell us something about why Oswald performed an assassination, somewhat like previous assassinations of presidents. But that this happened on this day in Dallas, Texas, to this president by this assassin, that can never be predicted. It is largely a matter of chance. Sometimes we forget that because with the enlightenment of the beginning in the 17th century, the idea of progress came in. And there is a myth of progress, that history is going to show continual human progress. We will learn more and more, get more and more power over the world. We will go to the planets to the stars, out into the universe as we see constantly in Star Trek. That notion of progress is deeply implanted in American conscience. It's a very fundamental thing in our culture. And yet, it's only a myth. We do not know, and there is no way of knowing, what the future holds. Past civilizations have come and gone. In the Cold War, the world came very close to a crisis of nuclear war that would have reduced us again to the Dark Ages. Things can be forgotten. Much of the learning of the Greeks has disappeared now. We no longer know about it. The lair libraries were destroyed. The Roman Empire went down in the Dark Ages. History is unpredictable. Consequently, if we try to put knowledge together only by the pattern of history, we're not going to arrive at a very unified view. There is another older way of unifying knowledge. We spoke of both Plato and Aristotle. In Plato's case, he tried to unify the different disciplines by reducing them to one supreme principle, which he called the idea of the want or the good. The trouble with that type of unification is it reduces the disciplines. It takes away their special character and autonomy. Aristotle, with his balancing of the material on one side, the spiritual on the other, and their reconciliation, had a better solution, which he called first science. First, not in the sense that we learn it first, but that it is supreme. Supreme science. Supreme science is a science 
that looks over all the disciplines, protects their autonomy so that it recognizes that each one has its own principles and methods and purposes, yet compares them so as to find what is similar and dissimilar among them and to find common principles that underlie them all. That is what came to be called metaphysics. That term metaphysics, which in Greek means after physics, is not Aristotle's title. He called this discipline first science or theology because it reached to the first principle, the cause of all things, the creator, and yet it did not try to reduce all this simply to one single idea as Plato had done. John Paul II, in his encyclical Faith and Reason, especially speaks of the importance of metaphysics for theology. It's a discipline that gets all of the rest of our human knowledge together without destroying the autonomy of the different sciences. It gets them together in a unified picture. And it is in that way that knowledge can best be used by theology, because theology also is a single science that tries to get everything together. The problem, of course, is whether such a unifying science is even possible. Many modern philosophers doubt this, and they have doubted it since the work of Immanuel Kant in the beginning of the 19th century. Kant considered the possibility of metaphysics and finally concluded that it is not possible because, for him, ultimately all we know are the constructs of our own mind projected on the data of sensation. And since what we know are the constructs of our own mind, if we attempt to construct a total view of reality, it will simply be a human invention, a kind of myth. A myth that may be very helpful, give us meaning to the world, but is an invented meaning. It is not the meaning of reality itself. He thought that this myth at least would be justified by the unity of human minds, that all human beings have fundamentally the same categories of thought. But now we no longer even believe that. Most philosophers today would say, well, there are many different worldviews. We construct many theories to put our knowledge together. And there is no way to determine that one or the other is the truth. That is a counsel of despair. And we can defend metaphysics the validity and possibility of metaphysics. If we go back to the way that Aristotle arrived at the very notion of such a science that puts everything together. He first thought that perhaps this was natural science. And of course, our materialist friends today believe that natural science is the only kind of objective knowledge we have. And so it might seem that if there is nothing in the world but material bodies, then 
that science that unifies all other knowledge will be natural science, and particularly physics, the basic part of natural science. But as I have tried to explain in the previous lectures, we must distinguish in natural science that part which is foundational, which does not rest on artificial observation or experiment, but is basic to all of our other knowledge because it is founded on analysis of our ordinary primitive experience. It is on that that Aristotle attempted to base universal unifying science. When he tried, however, to do this with natural science, make it the unifying science, he discovered in the foundational part of the science that it cannot unify all our knowledge. Why? Because as we examine the changing world, we discover it is not self-explanatory. Natural science brings us back ultimately to certain fundamental forces. Today we think that these fundamental forces are four, namely gravitation, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Those forces explain everything else in natural science. Of course, in fact, we're not yet able to reduce everything to those forces, but we believe that eventually they will explain everything in the whole realm of natural science. Perhaps that is not correct. We may find there are more forces. Some think that at the Big Bang, these four forces were unified and they only gradually separated from each other. But in any case, what we do know is that there must be fundamental forces in the universe. But those fundamental forces are forces embodied in some kind of material objects and agents. A force doesn't just exist in a void. It's a force that is the nature of some object, like gravitation is now thought to exist in particles called gravitons. And electromagnetism exists in the electron and the proton. Since those are material bodies that have these forces, Aristotle indicated that they could not act without being acted on. No material thing can simply act of itself. It can't give itself an actuality that it does not already possess. Everything that moves another is itself moved if we are talking about material agents, bodies that have forces. That means that ultimately science must come back to fundamental forces and certain fundamental agents in the universe, but they must be moved by something that is not material by immaterial force, immaterial power. That means then that science 
is limited to a material reality and depends on some greater immaterial reality. That is the truth in Plato's conception of the world, that there is a spiritual reality beside a material reality. And I have argued for that in earlier lectures, showing that it's necessary also to grant that in order to explain human abstract thinking. We can't understand ourselves without realizing that we are more than material beings. We are also spiritual beings. The material universe, therefore, is only part of reality. There is an immaterial reality greater than the material reality, and the material reality, though real indeed, depends for its dynamism on the immaterial. Since that is true, then first science will be something broader than natural science. And it will also be broader than mathematics because mathematics is an only an abstract study of quantity and quantities exist only in material things. It will be broader than ethics and politics because they have to do with human behavior and the human being is, has a body and is studied in natural science. Consequently, there is a possibility of a science that is broader than these, that includes the material and the immaterial. It's in that sense that we say, and this often puzzles students who take a course in metaphysics, that metaphysics is about being as being. That doesn't say very much, does it? Being as being. What that really means is that metaphysics is a science that deals with the totality of reality, both the material and the immaterial, and compares them. Now, we only know the immaterial through the material. All of our knowledge comes from our senses and our intellectual analysis of that. But since our intellects are spiritual, they also can extend that knowledge of the material world by analogy to the immaterial world. We can say the immaterial world is the cause of the material world and as an effect tells us something about the cause, but not everything. So our knowledge of the material world gained in natural science, mathematics, ethics, and politics when compared with each other, gives us a certain analogical understanding of the spiritual reality on which everything ultimately depends. That is why Aristotle could call this theology. It is the ultimate rational science. It puts everything we know together and it leads us to some knowledge of the first cause of all things. It tells us, while natural science tells us that God and immaterial reality exist, and therefore natural science does not cover all of reality, and we need metaphysics to do that, 
Metaphysics helps us to gain some knowledge of what immaterial reality is like through this analogy. Granted, as Aristotle says, that what we know about immaterial reality is not very much. Nevertheless, it's the most important thing we know because, as John Paul II says, it reaches the answers to ultimate questions, the things as human beings we ultimately want to know. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What must our life be in order to arrive at our goal? We know this only by putting all of our other knowledge together. Metaphysics has no data of its own. It depends for its data on all of the other disciplines. But what it does with that data is to transcend the material, to see the immaterial world as it were in the mirror of the material, and to show the ultimate principles, the unifying principles of all reality. Consequently, it can be called wisdom. It's another name for it. It is wisdom. Not the perfect wisdom that comes to us from God in revelation and by faith, but it is human wisdom. Aristotle says we really cannot study these questions until we're 50 years old. I didn't really begin to think about it until I was 80 years old. But the reason we can't do that is we have to learn a lot about science, about the liberal arts, about ethics and politics, about technology. We have to get some general view of all the disciplines. We have to be generally educated people. And that can't simply be book learning. It has to come from life then we are ready to think metaphysically. However, the younger student, by studying something about metaphysics, gets a sketch of where he is going, the wisdom which he or she seeks to make sense out of life and all reality. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.